Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. It feels like just when we feel like the sun is coming out, there is another storm that blows in. I personally really feel that once we get through the next three months, the, the conditions will start to look really different. But I would say to your audience, we are a resource. We are here in service of the industry. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. The global pandemic brought tragedy to our industry, and I think this needs to be said, it brought opportunity as well. Some restaurant owners and operators saw the pandemic as a catalyst for change, and so did some of the organizations that support us. Today's guest is Claire Reichenbach, the CEO of the James Beard Foundation. We talk about the evolution of our industry and the evolution of the foundation over the last 20 years, and especially over the last 24 months. So the Beard Foundation started off with the eponymous James Beard, the man, who was not a chef per se, but a very impassioned celebrant and coach and mentor of chefs. He was a prolific cookbook writer, a bon viveur, and at a time when much of America was looking to Europe for haute cuisine and fine dining, he was saying, no, let's look closer to home. Let's celebrate what America has to offer, American ingredients, American resource, American talent. He was very much in the vanguard of America's food culture in that regard. He was one of the first chefs on TV and is affectionately known as America's first foodie. And again, he was very prescient in terms of what we now call farm to table, but was very much a supporter of local and seasonal food and the democratization of good food, access of good food for all. And so when he died in the mid 80s, the great and the good of the culinary industry came together and said, look, this man has had a profound impact in terms of accelerating this industry, putting a spotlight on it and really celebrating the characters within. We need to ensure that his legacy continues and endures. And so they came together and actually bought the James Beard house, the house where he lived and worked and founded the foundation with the overarching objective of the continued professionalization of the industry. And I know that's a loaded word, but it was about putting the culinary arts onto the same footing and the same regard as the performing arts. And there were three component parts of that professionalization, if you like. One was the awards. So much like the Oscars of the performing arts, what can we have for the food and the culinary industry that awards excellence and anoints leaders within it and building that recognized external currency. The second element of that professionalization was the performance space for chefs. And that was the Beard House, a space that was dedicated to chefs showcasing their signature food. And again, it's kind of affectionately known as the Carnegie Hall for chefs. And then the third element was supporting the next generation of culinary talent in the form of scholarships. 
So those were the three parts that were born as the kind of the foundations of the James Beard Foundation. Um, as we have evolved over time, those elements have evolved, and we can talk more about that, Josh. But I'd say really the main evolution has been to center all that we do in impact and mission, recognizing that through the awards and our events and others, we have currency, we have leverage, we have a voice and influence. And how do we harness that in support of a better food system and a better food industry really anchored in equity and sustainability? So that evolution has seen the birth of a whole portfolio of programs and initiatives to support members of the culinary community in those endeavors, whether it's our boot camp for policy and change for chefs who want to be effective advocates, whether it's our women's entrepreneurial leadership to help more women get into positions of leadership and responsibility, or our programming around sustainability, food waste reduction, full use, sustainable sourcing, etc. And then more recently, the latest iteration of the foundation is really about the new articulation of what the standard for the industry is, and we can talk more. But I think many people regard us first and foremost for the awards, but I'm keen to impress upon your <laughs> audience that we're so much, that is a core part of what we do. And that in itself is evolving quite profoundly as well. But there's a whole suite of resource and programming in service to and support of the culinary community. When you think about your audience, when you think about the industry at large that you're trying to support, I mean, the industry is many different things. You know, it is that look at Vespertine in Los Angeles, right? Like the dude's cooking food out of a spaceship. And then you have dim sum places and strip malls. And when you look to service the industry and Lord knows there's fast casual and fast food, so many different facets to this industry. Does the James Beard Foundation look to support all of them? So, yeah, we are a chef-first organization, and we recognize the breadth and richness of the culinary scene. I'd say we're still chef-first. We want to support the people behind the industry with the people within the teams, but our core audience is the chef and restaurateur. But I think we've been broadening the aperture over the years in terms of who is seen within our community. And certainly through the programs that I was referencing, we're bringing in members of the community from different arena who may not have thought of themselves as a kind of typical James Beard chef. And I'm very keen that that aperture continues to broaden and that we really attract the full swath and the broad church of the industry. What attracted you to the organization? Many things. It's quite funny, Josh. You know, I'm a Brit, but I came to New York about 15 years ago and I lived a block away from the James Beard house. And I'd walk past and just see these like amazing dinners every night. And I was like, who is this James Beard dude who's having dinner parties on a regular basis? And I was very compelled initially. To, so I became a member very early on. I have always been driven by mission first organizations. You know, I worked for the BBC for a long time. And food and wine and the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry has always had a very special place in my heart. I don't hail from that. It's always been an area of personal passion. So the combination of an industry that I'm passionately about on a personal level married with this mission and objective that really spoke to me personally in terms of how do I want to use my life force, um, it was a very compelling combination. I come from media, which is all about storytelling and narrative. And in many ways, so is food. It's about the story behind the plate, the narrative 
of how the chef has come to bring that offering to bear. So there are parallels. And my discipline has been around strategy and brand. And that has great applicability across many organizations. And I've enjoyed applying that at the James Beard Foundation. In the early days, when you started with the organization, what were your objectives? What did you think your unique skill set would bring to the role, to the foundation? Well, when I came on board, I was really struck by so the mission and impact programming that I was talking about sat somewhat distinctly from the awards, from the beard house dinners, from the dining elements. And from my kind of strategic stance, I was very keen to ensure that those worlds came together and that everything we did was the recon- the interface of the pleasure and the purpose and that they inform each other as opposed to sitting separate or discrete or distinct. We're a mission-based organization. I wanted to bring that center stage to everything we do. And so from this strategic positioning of pleasure and purpose has come to bear our clarion call of good food for good, that we show up in every way. Yes, it's about celebrating deliciousness and the dining, but it really is about the change we can bring about through food. And the pandemic was a massive opportunity to show that you care, to show that you're useful, to show that you can help. Do you feel like JBF sees that opportunity to prove its value to the industry? And this has been a profoundly hard time for the industry without question. As you know, as your audience feels and breathes this, even now, you know, two years on and still dealing with so many of these challenges. The foundation, as I said, we are for the industry, we're also of the industry. And in many ways, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were going through the same things in terms of we had to close the beard house, we had to pivot all our events, but we acted quickly in terms of, look, we know we need to channel all our energy and resource and support to help our community get through this. We can see the industry was bleeding. And so we launched our campaign, Open for Good, which is a build on our Good Food for Good. Really, as I said, in this early triage stages, what can we do very pragmatically to help people? So we gave out nearly $5 million worth of emergency grants. We'd never been in the grant-making business before, but we knew we had to act quickly, and this is what people needed. So we made these investments. We were one of the founding partners of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, recognizing that bringing all our advocates and our army of change makers in the industry to bear for the benefit of the industry was critically important. So previously, if we'd been advocating for composting, all that energy around policy change was like, you've got to help our industry now. So really putting our shoulder to all the advocacy and policy efforts that gave rise to the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. And again, we still to this day continuing to support the efforts to replenish that. And then the third area of activity was very practical resource and advice, you know, how to apply for a PPP loan, what is the safety guide, all the whiplash that people were going through in terms of different mandates and instructions, trying to cut a path through that for people. And also recognizing that people just actually need to talk to one another. Even now, again, we are holding these like Chef Connect calls because these are independent businesses. You can feel quite isolated and yet people are going through so many of the same things. So what can we do is acting as the connective tissue within the industry to ensure that people are connected, they don't feel they're on their own, and there can be some sharing of best practice. And But just on a human level, a sharing of empathy and knowing that others are going through this too. And it continues to be a brutal time. 
I know that fear. The fear of losing everything, or almost as bad. The fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. I'm sure you've asked the same question for the last almost two years, which is, what restaurants need most now? And I'm curious, here we are at the top of a new year. What do you think restaurants need most now? I think there's short term and there's long term. And I think that's the stages we've been in that how do we help restaurants survive? And then what does the rebuild look like? And how do we rebuild in a way that addresses some of the fundamental fault lines that have come into such sharp relief over the last two years? Again, I think there is a need for financial support right now. Just thinking about this last holiday period with Omicron and abated bills for the last two years coming to bear massive labor shortages, sickness, having to close restaurants, forfeiting holiday funding, holiday revenue, having to keep your team on, even though they're out because they're so scarce at this moment, supply chain issues, the cost, you know, right now, people just need a financial shot in the arm to get through this winter period. So hence the continued efforts lobbying for that. But as we think about the rebuild, how can we support the formation of different foundation stones to see a more sustainable industry. And part of that is very practically what are the economics of restaurants. Again, you know this, that single margin businesses, not sitting on big cash reserves, you get a shock to the system and the whole thing crumbles. You're paying last month's rent with revenue today. And if that is stopped, you know, you're really exposed. So we have partnered with Deloitte And we did a big industry consultation looking at some of the business innovations and economic models that have evolved. I mean, people have been so innovative and experimental through necessity. How do we capture the lessons learned and build some playbooks around those revenue diversifications, moving to retail, et cetera, and some of the cost reductions so that we can build on that? But also looking at what's the role of tech going forward? People have adopted tech in an accelerated way, again, through necessity. What of that has been good that can be sustained? And then looking at labor practices, looking at the safety net that is needed for the workforce. We've seen people leave in droves because the risk reward equation looks quite different now. How do we switch that so that working in restaurants, working in hospitality is a career? It's not just a job that you come into and then exit because it doesn't afford you a respectful life. What can we do as support of the industry to help that from a business model perspective, a training and leadership perspective, and a policy change perspective? Let's talk about that for a second, because I think that we as an industry, and not to oversimplify, and I've been in every tier of dining, but we could give people the job of their dreams. There would still be a ton of issues involved, but we could offer living wages, subsidized health care. We could offer retirement programs, paid time off, maternity, paternity, but the patrons are going to have to pay for it. 
and we as an industry, and I'll take responsibility for this as well, I concealed how difficult it was to stay in business. I always undercharged instead of charging appropriately or charging to actually make a profit. And I am representative of the masses. I am certainly not an isolated case. I feel like the James Beard Foundation does one thing exceptionally well. You do many things well, but one thing exceptionally well, and it's storytelling. And the biggest hurdle for independent restaurant owners is telling the story of why prices don't need to increase by 15% or 20%. You need to increase by like 40%. And I'm wondering, privately, when you guys talk about what restaurant owners need most, do you talk about storytelling and the positive impacts that it could have on a business? It's a really good point. And storytelling, as opposed to information sharing, is a again, go back to media, is a far more effective way of communicating really critical information. And the consumer is such a core part of this equation, as you say. And I think there's an opacity. As a consumer, you go in, there's not an appreciation of the value chain, of what goes into a PL, of what goes into the cost of the delicious food on the plate and all the surround sound that goes into that. We feel the responsibility in terms of how can we, again, use our voice and our storytelling power to engage the consumer on that. I think one positive of the last couple of years is people have really put their hands up saying we care about the ethical components of business. We want to use our financial agency where we spend our dollars with establishments and with people who line up to us morally. And I think part of the story for restaurants is to demonstrate the value set that they are working to. And part of that is if you want me to treat my team well, which my God, I want to do that. I just got to be able to afford it. And part of the responsibility needs to be borne by the consumer. And it's something we're looking at about how do we engage our consumer audience around those messages. And we've been focusing on how to be a good diner at this current time when people are stressed and it's hard to offer that hospitality when you're checking for vaccines and forcing mask wearing. It's very hard. But going forward, I think our job to help lift the veil of what it takes to bring delicious thoughtful, sustainable, ethical food to you comes with a price tag and you need to bear some of that cost. That sits with us as well. For the independent owners and operators listening, how can the foundation support them today? What are two or three things that they could go to the website and get information or support? It's a great question and thank you for the opportunity. So our Open for Good campaign continues. If you go to our website, there's a whole section on industry support, Josh. It's a library of all the webinars that we have been making available over the last few years. There's a lot there around mental health provision. As I said, there's a lot around these business innovations under the Deloitte work that is available. We also have a whole suite of training programs and mentorships and education initiatives through scholarships, as I said, all the way through to this kind of entrepreneurial leadership for women. So I would encourage your audience to please go online and explore what's on offer or equally reach out to the team. As you said, our industry is so richly diverse in all senses and the needs vary too. So we're keen to understand the different needs and how we can support people. To talk about a more fun topic, let's talk about awards. Oh, yeah. 
the award seems so cool and so fun. And, you know, I interview people and they're like a James Beard nominee, which means they didn't even win. Right. But just being nominated by the James Beard Foundation is such an honor. And I'm curious to know, can you walk our listeners through how someone wins a James Beard Award? Well, first of all, it has nothing to do with me. (laughs) Uh, And it's worth saying we took a year out to really lift the lid on the awards because, you know, they've been in existence for over 30 years. There has been incremental change for sure. But we took a year out to say, how do we really overhaul them so there's greater transparency, greater consistency, and there's more of a level playing field in terms of people who can come to the table for the awards. We want to ensure that the awards reflect the industry that we serve. So there's the Restaurant Chef Awards that I think people know well. There's also the Media Awards, which is broadcast journalism and books. And then there's the Leadership Awards, which is for people in the broader food ecosystem. And there's a slightly different approach to each of those. But essentially, we are looking to award excellence in each of those arenas, sustained excellence. But going forward, you know, we are trying to, a bit like broadening the aperture of the people we serve. I recognize the responsibility of the foundation as the standard bearer, as you say, to say, look, culinary excellence remains absolutely core, but in and of itself, it's not enough. And how do we use this powerful currency that you've just referred to? People hold it in such high regard. How do we use that as a force for good? It's a very powerful change lever. So how do we ensure that we're anointing people who are not only producing incredible food, but are leaders in terms of the values of the foundation, in terms of equity, in terms of sustainability, in terms of community give back? So this year, some of the changes that we have introduced is an alignment statement. So if your listeners want to apply for award, the call for entry period is in the fall. So it's October through till the end of November. That's what it has been this year. It may change a bit next year. And you either submit your work if you're in media or you submit your name or yourselves for the other awards. And we're asking people to write or submit an alignment statement to our values. Um, This doesn't need to be a PhD. (laughs) It's 150 words. It can be audio. It can be video. We want this to be a light touch. But we want people to be thoughtful and intentional about how they line up. And that's increasingly important. So thinking about your audience, we're encouraging everyone to apply, but giving some thought to that alignment statement is important. There has been criticism, especially in recent months and years, uh, regarding the lack of diversity and inclusion. And as a leader, I can tell you personally, every year I look back on the man I was a year ago and I think, man, what an idiot that guy is. And it's because I I learn every year and it's the things that were so obviously wrong weren't that obvious back then. And I'm curious, as a leader, how did you internalize the criticism around diversity and inclusion? And personally, how did you adjust your own behavior? Yeah, thank you. I think we're all on this lifelong journey of learning and improving and self-reflection. That is a never-ending path. I think we can all agree the last couple of years have been a really profoundly tough time for the industry, a tough time for people trying to steer organizations. Equity has been, been in the foundation's DNA since its existence. It's been in our mission statement for decades. And whilst we had 
a number of initiatives and programs in support of that. It was very sobering as we looked at it. There is so much more we can do. Yes, we've got foundations of this, but we need to accelerate and go deeper. And for me as a leader, again, personally, feeling the responsibility on the levels of my organization. And if we're the standard bearers for the industry, how are we living up to those standards? And that sits with me to own that and work with my team around that. But also in terms of our programming, how do we really accelerate the support for people of color, for historically marginalized people in our industry? Our industry is defined by diversity. It is not defined by equity and a big role for us. So for me, it was a time of self-reflection and a time of real galvanization in terms of there's a lot more we need to do here, but we have the tools and platform and the team and talent who are motivated to do it. And we've made those commitments. I'm proud of the changes we've made, but we're on a path and we continue to build on it. And even though the industry has changed so quickly, I mean, you stepped into big role at a complicated time. It was in the midst of the Me Too movement, followed by a global pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a hard time to be the person in charge. And if you were to look back and rate your performance thus far, I'm curious to know, what are you most proud of and what do you wish you had done differently? As I said, I think we, during the summer of 2020, when there was a lot of challenge, frankly, on every level, on every level, And we took the criticism, the challenges very, very seriously. And we worked with experts in the field, both in terms of supporting us, looking at our internal organization, but also looking at the awards. And we said, we don't want to do this in a cosmetic way. We want to do this at a very root cause level way. So I'm proud that we worked with some kind of experts in the field. I'm pleased that we are looking at this at a very foundational level. I said, we took time out to ensure from the awards perspective, we were putting in sustainable, systemic change. But with all these things, could we have done that quicker? Could we have done this earlier? We were on a path, but that could have been accelerated. Yes, you know, time of learning and reflection, but I'm confident that we've put the building blocks in for change that are needed. And we aside, you personally, what are your goals for this year as a leader, as the head of this organization? I had this conversation with someone earlier today and I was like, what are your goals for the year? And I was expecting him to throw out metrics and things like that. And he goes, I want to smile more. I want to spend two hours outside in the sun, like a human being every day. That's what I would like to call people more and slack people less. And so I'm curious, as you look into 2022, kind of impacts are you looking to make in your own life? And how do you think that will reflect in your role with JBF? I want to see people again. This last year, we have recruited so many new fantastic people to the team. And it's kind of breaking my heart that I haven't met them in person. And I am big on energy exchange. And I think it's so important. Personally, for my team, I want to get us together in a way that people are comfortable with, but really start to, I think that's when the creativity flows And people really can relate to one another as human beings. And the stop-start in terms of getting back to the office not, I think, is tough. I mean, this year is a really big year for the foundation. It's the first year after the awards audit. So all of that is in play. And that crescendos in June this year 
And it's such a big team effort. I want to get my arms around people. <laughs> and I think also, you know, again, as human beings, we've all, it's been a time of reckoning in terms of what's important and life priorities and making time. We're doing summer Fridays all the way through winter. <laughs> and prioritizing some of the stuff that's important for body and soul. This world awards the cerebral. I want to make sure that we are listening and awarding the heart and the soul equally, and that that influences our work culture and our ways of working. And we've talked about it many times throughout the interview, but James Beard does have cultural influence over the industry at large. And so if you as a leader and if JBF as an organization is able to create better work-life balance, then it's possible for that to influence the industry at large. I think for me, in terms of our influence, it's about being as intentional and thoughtful about how the awards are deployed and who we are anointing and what we're celebrating and who we're supporting through that. I think that's what's going to move the dial. And really the support element is key. I think we can say we want to celebrate people who are demonstrating these things. We recognize that it comes with a price tag. It requires training. It needs support. And I want to make sure that that side of the equation, that ballast and resource is equally there from us. Who do you look up to in the industry? For me personally, I, like everyone else, I deify Jose Andreas, but like I more closely connect with Robert Egger. I've interviewed him for the show. I mean, he's the hammer, right? Like he's the guy that goes in and is doing like the real dirty work and creating those strategic partnerships and those alignments to feed as many people as is humanly possible, not to take anything away from the chef. But for me, it's granular. Who's on the floor? Who are the boots on the ground? that are really getting it done. That's who I look up to and I model my life and my career after. Who's that for you? I think within the industry, I mean, I wouldn't want to single people out, frankly. I mean, the last two years, we had a celebration in the autumn that was about stories of leadership and resilience. And the number of people we could have shone a light on on that occasion was just huge. And it's those personal stories. I see these people, the tenacity and the passion these last two years, having to, to step up time and time again, and people going into battle for their teams, doing those extra, I'm going to do a virtual event this evening, even though I want to be with my kids because I need to raise money to pay for my teams who are furloughed, who are, you know, those stories of local leadership and really the unsung heroes are the people who inspire me greatly. What are your goals for this year? What are three things that if you accomplish as the leader of the James Beard Foundation, you will feel like it's a successful year? So the first one is the successful rollout of the awards and the implement. We have made many, many changes and we will not get all of it right and it will be a learning. But I think an awards ceremony that feels reflective and respectful of our industry is so core to this year. The second piece really is about we're setting a new ambition for our support programs for the industry. We've talked about that in terms of women's leadership and equity, gen- racial equity and sustainability, having a portfolio of programs that really has heft and is responsive. Just to backtrack, we've done a lot of original research in terms of landscape for the industry um, to ensure that we're putting our resource where it's going to make the most difference. So bringing that to bear. And then thirdly, it's really about my team. My team's been through a lot of stuff and I'd love them. I'd love to get to the end of this year where we're feeling really buoyed up, 
proud of what we've achieved and frankly energized for the work to come. This is an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? My words of advice, well, there are words of admiration, and I think we will get through this. It feels like just when we feel like the sun is coming out, there is another storm that blows in. I personally really feel that once we get through the next three months, the the conditions will start to look really different. But I would say to your audience that we are a resource. We are here in service of the industry. And please to reach out, come to our website. There's a whole series of things there, but just personally reach out and we'd love to connect people where we think we can be most helpful. And I think to the consumers that are listening, it's like be good diners, be thoughtful, recognize your role to play in this. If the menu is more limited than usual, understand that. If there are fewer people on the ground, accommodate that. Tip well, be courteous, and have love and protection for your local beloved restaurants. That's Claire Reichenbach. For more on how the James Beard Foundation can support you and your restaurant, go to jamesbeard.org. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.